I want to share with you this morning a, a little-known piece of theology in the Presbyterian Church. Are you aware that those who sit in the front rows of church remove a thousand of years from purgatory that they ought, ought to... Be? Did you know that? And, and, and the farther back you go, the more years you add to purgatory. So, no, I'm just saying, uh, Joe and, and uh, Misty and Ashley and Kiara, a thousand years less you're going to be spending in that place. So... Uh, Really, sometimes I feel like I'm preaching from a mile away when I'm up there. So if those of you who have the spiritual gift of closeness would employ it in the future, fill these pews up. It just helps your preacher preach. Would you, would you do that for me? That would, be, that would be terrific. Welcome to all of you. So glad that you're uh, here this day to, to worship the Lord. I told you last week about a little excitement I'd had where um, my social security number had been stolen and someone tried to file a false tax return on us with the IRS. Well, this week we found out that um, Joey Hawkins, the husband of our missions director, also had his social security number stolen, also had a false tax return filed on us. We also, there was a scam that tried to hit us, a very sophisticated scam this week, and all of that just came to remind me, oh yeah, what's, what are we preaching on right now? Yeah, spiritual warfare. So the devil's kicking up a little bit of snot, and we're just going to kick right back. So it just encourages me to believe that we are headed in exactly the right direction, talking about this stuff that is so easy to ignore. So we continue this morning in the series. And this title, the title of this message is, You've Got to Be Kidding. You've got to be kidding. And I think you'll get an idea later on what I mean by the title of this message. But let's begin by standing in honor of the two great texts that are kind of guiding us through this. I would like you to stand. We're going to read together Ephesians 6, 1 John 4, 4, these two passages. And uh, let's, let's begin our, our sermon together by reciting God's word. Here we go. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then First John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the... Why don't you put your hand on your heart and recite that one more time. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. This is the word of the Lord. We thank you for this promise, Lord, that you are the victor and that we belong to you. And because we belong to you, we are victorious as well. Help us to walk in that victory, for we pray it through Christ our Lord. And everybody said, have a seat. We are dealing, if you're visiting with us and you're saying, wow, this isn't my grandma's uh, Presbyterian church. We are, we are dealing with stuff that Christians uh, often would prefer to avoid, talking about. Kind of sometimes a little dark, sometimes a little scary, but we avoid dealing with this stuff at our peril. At our peril. And I just want to start my message by saying this. There's nothing to be afraid of. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We need to to believe that. We're talking about stuff that we need to talk about, but my hope is that every day, every believer is going to walk out of here with a greater sense of power and confidence and authority uh, when they come to have these spiritual skirmishes that every one of us is going to have, knowing that Christ has conferred his power, his authority upon you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We already have the victory. And we need to begin to live as if we really believe that we're so. So that's what this series is really about, talking about things that are sometimes ignored and giving us the confidence that we have in the Spirit of Christ. So I want to just review where we have been for the last few weeks. Remember, the Apostle Paul teaches us that we live in an overlap world. 
Part of the world is the physical world that we can experience and perceive with our five senses. And part of the world is a spiritual world. He calls it the, the, the heavenly places, which doesn't mean up there. It means right here with us. And so, on the one hand, we, we, we perceive each other, we perceive our material world, but Paul wants to make it clear that there is also a spiritual element and, and a spiritual, the spiritual beings that share this space with us. Some of them are good, some of them are naughty. And the naughty ones are headed up by the chief spiritual hooligan that the Bible calls Satan or the devil. Or as we heard about last week, Jesus called him the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. But you'll also remember that's only for the time being. He may have the keys right now, but daddy's going to take them back someday. And we've already seen a glimpse of that through the, the ministry of Jesus, in whose life and death and resurrection, that was really a cosmic battle. He did battle with the enemy, and he defeated the enemy in that battle. There's an atonement theory that we talked about last week, a couple of fancy Latin words, if you might remember. Do you remember the name of this victorious Jesus we're talking about? Christus Victor. Say it. Christus Victor. Christus Victor. And it declares that in Christ we already have the victory. The writer of Hebrews captures that idea of the cosmic battle that Jesus is fighting and has won with these words. Through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and delivered all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. So you see the word death, death, death appear again and again and again. Basically, Jesus takes Satan on his own grounds. He meets him on his own grounds in the field of death. The devil thought he'd beat him. Jesus actually is victorious over death. And through that victory, he sets us free, delivers us from the clutches of the enemy. The, the very thing that, thought, that Satan thought would be his, his moment of victory was the cross of Jesus when he was killed. It ended up being his own demise. There, I saw a cartoon, someone sent, sent it to me this week that kind of captures that very well if we take a look at that. There it is. See that? The serpent destroyed on, with the, the, the death of Jesus on the cross. So today, I want us to dig a little deeper into this cosmic battle of Jesus. Uh, Particularly, I want to look at the ministry of deliverance that he had, or exorcisms as we find them in the gospel accounts. Uh, we're, We're going to look at them, we're going to learn a few things from Jesus about those, and then later on in the sermon, I'll bring you to that you got to be kidding me moment, okay? So are you ready for this? Okay, here we go, here we go. Thank you for the smattering of applause. Uh, So here we go. Matthew, just before Jesus really begins his ministry with the preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew gives a prequel. The very last part of chapter 4, he provides a summary statement of what Jesus was going to be doing in his ministry going forward. Let's, I want you to listen to this, okay? And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Boy, do we need his fame to spread throughout all Syria today, don't we? Syria needs Jesus. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So Matthew gives a summary statement about the ministry of Jesus. He preaches, travels around preaching, healing And right in the midst of this proclamation of what he does, we see the words, this oppressed spirits, those who are oppressed by demons. 
I do want to take note of something here. Uh, There are some people who dismiss the idea of demonic activity as belonging to the superstitious age back back in in the day. But could I point out that Matthew states very clearly there were some people that were just sick. They were just, they were ill. There were some people who just had seizures, which would be his way of saying epilepsy. But right in the middle of those, and there were some people who were dealing with stuff that was of a demonic origin, okay? So even the gospel writers acknowledge not everything had to do with demons. Some of it just broken. Some of it sick. Some of it having epilepsy. But right in the middle, we hear these words about Jesus doing this battle with the, those who were oppressed, the, the demons that oppressed these people. And if we had been there at the time, I think we would have been astounded by the power of that. If just the healing and the preaching were all we had heard, if all we did was sit at the feet of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount and hear for the first time, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the the merciful, our jaws would have just dropped with the power and the profundity of his teaching. And if all we had done is tag along with Jesus when he was healing people, giving them new legs, giving them new eyes, giving them a tongue for the first time, giving them new flesh. If we had only seen that, we would have been astounded. That was all pretty spectacular, but by far the most spectacular part of Jesus' ministry was his, uh, his conflict with the demons that oppressed the people that Matthew mentions here. And this is the first time that people had seen anything like this. Even in the Old Testament, the accounts of the great prophets, we are told that there were miracles, uh, that there were healings. There are even accounts of people rising from the dead in the Old Testament. But never, never, never do you see any prophet doing what we see in Jesus when the Son of God comes on the scene and he does battle with these demonic forces that were holding people in captivity. We had never, they had never seen anything like that before. A little, a little teaching for you. There are six exorcisms that are recounted in detail in the synoptic gospels. When I say synoptics, that means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three. Six specific exorcisms that are mentioned. Interestingly, the gospel of John doesn't have any exorcisms at all. Uh, it's probably a theological thing with John because he wrote his, his gospel to try to do something different. Although John's Jesus does talk more about the devil than the other three gospel writers. But you have six exorcisms, and as best I can, as I can count, and I went through all the gospels this week to do that, about 23 times when the issues of spirits, evil spirits, or teachings about that or exorcism are mentioned or alluded to in uh, in the gospel account. So that's a, that's a lot of activity that's centered around this particular focus of ministry. And honestly, we're so used to reading these stories that we've kind of become dull to them. We, we, we really don't pay attention to how stupendous they, these moments really were. What a spectacular moment of power was on display. And so one of my hopes this morning is we regain some of our astonishment about this ministry of Jesus. And to do that, I want to turn to one of these exorcism accounts, the one that I think is most spectacular. We'll see if you recognize it, okay? Jesus and the boys got in a boat. They were up in Capernaum on the northwest coast of Sea of Galilee, and they rowed across down to the southeast coast to an area called the Gerasenes. The Gerasenes were a Gentile area. That means Jews didn't live there. There were non-Jews living there. And, uh, and as they rowed up and beached the boat and got out, they noticed something from a distance that looked very odd. 
And the closer it got, the odder it looked. It was a man, and he was running towards them, and they could hear him already yelling at the top of his voice. What made it even odder was he was naked as a jaybird. The guy didn't have a stitch of clothing on. Come to find out, this guy was crazed. He was known by the townspeople, particularly for his superhuman strength. They had tried in the past to chain him up so that they could keep him from harming them and and even from harming himself. And he would just snap those chains. This poor soul, he lived in and slept in the tombs in the surrounding area. Imagine sleeping in a, in a place of the dead. His, his, his cries, his wails of anguish could be heard at night. And another very interesting thing we discover about him is he was a cutter. He was a cutter. In, in, in other words, he took sharp edges of stones and would cut his own flesh in anguish, which is done today. We have kids that are doing the same thing. So he was a cutter, and he would cut himself and left these terrible scars, these terrible wounds. He really is one of the most pathetic creatures that we will find in all of Scripture. And this is the man that is running full speed towards Jesus and the disciples. And the boys who had just landed on the shore must have been wondering what kind of a rest and recreation this was going to be, you know? They see this guy running towards them. I don't know whether they wanted to protect their boss or jump in the boat and row away as fast as they could. But up he runs, up he runs, faster and faster. And then he, and he's screaming at the top of the lungs. Jesus, he throws himself in the ground and says, Jesus, son of the most high God, what would you have to do with me? I adjure you in the name of God. Do not torment me. Jesus asks him a question. And it's the only time recorded in the exorcism accounts of the Gospels where Jesus converses with the demons. That's worth taking note of. Do you remember the question he asked, this, this, the voice that was coming out of this man? What did he say? What is your name? What is your name? And do you remember his response? Legion. My name is Legion, for we are many. That's haunting. A legion was a unit in the Roman military of 6,000 soldiers. And so you discover pretty quickly that from the voice that speaks out of this wretched soul that he wasn't possessed by one spirit. This man was possessed by many, many, many spirits. As I said, one of the most pathetic creatures we see in the stories of of the Bible. Then the spirits ask a favor of Jesus, which seemed kind of odd, doesn't it? Well, do you remember what they asked him to do? They said, please don't throw us into the abyss. If you're going to cast us out, and they knew. By the way, the spirits always knew it was Jesus. They always recognized Jesus, and they knew what was coming. They said, don't throw us into the abyss. Throw us, would you, if you're going to cast us out, cast us out into those swine over there. That's the hint that we know that this is not a Jewish area, because all the bacon walking around over there. It was 2,000 big chunks of bacon walking around there. That was about $600,000 worth of bacon in, in modern-day dollars. They said, will you throw us into, cast us into, the, into those pigs? You've got to kind of feel sorry for the pigs, don't you? I mean, they're just going around being their piggy stealth, wallowing in the mud, and saying, boom, suddenly they're filled with legion. And you know what happens next, right? A swine dive. They, they jump off into the water. Now you've got 
You got 2,000 pieces of floating bacon out in the Sea of, of Galilee. But that man was delivered. For the first time, this pathetic, tormented creature is in his right mind, and he's delivered. He's set free. It's a magnificent and exciting story of the power of Christ over the power of evil, isn't it? And that's just one of them. In Mark's gospel, Mark is always the writer of action. He jumps right in. Jesus is teaching in a, in a, in a, a synagogue in Capernaum. You can visit the ruins of that synagogue today. He's preaching, and, and right in the middle of it, a man jumps up in the middle of the, of the service and starts screaming at him. It's a demoniac. Jesus deals with that. Or there's a, a guy that brings his little boy to Jesus who's been possessed since his earliest days. And these demons force this little boy to throw himself into the fire to burn himself and throw him into the water to try to drown himself. And so you have these stupendous life and death accounts that are taking place. A a crazy, naked, scarred man running full speed at Jesus. A a man throwing himself on the the ground as he shrieks in the middle of a church service. And, And a little boy who's foaming at the mouth. And Jesus sets all of them free. He sets all of them free. It really is a a spectacular display of the power of Christ. Jesus, of course, acted out of his compassion for them. But we discover in his teachings in Luke that the exorcisms of Jesus were primarily a display of his spiritual authority over darkness. The exorcism of Jesus were primarily a display of his spiritual authority over darkness. And again and again, people would use the same word to describe Jesus' ministry. When they saw him healing, when they heard his teaching, when they saw him casting out spirits, they would say, he has authority. Remember reading that word? The Greek word for that is exousia. Say that. Exousia. They would say, he has authority like no one we've ever seen before. See, the rabbis that they listened to, they just quoted another rabbi who quoted another rabbi who quoted another rabbi who quoted another rabbi. Jesus said, I say unto you. You have heard it written, I say unto you. And in his name, he would cast out these spirits and heal these people. And the people were astounded. Like the amazed folks who were sitting in church in synagogue in Capernaum that day. This is what they said. What is this? After they watched what he did to this man. What is this? A new teaching with authority, exousia. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So one of my hopes coming out of this message is simply that I would restore some sense of astonishment in your hearts about the things that you've read so often you've become dull to them, of the power of Christ over the evil one. Christus victor. Jesus may have called Satan the ruler of this world, but every time that Jesus and Satan went toe-to-toe, Jesus kicked his butt. And he still does. We need to believe that. I think the disciples were astonished too. Sometimes you don't realize this, but some of the disciples were probably your age. They were teenagers, maybe 20-somethings. Can you imagine tagging along with an older guy and watching him do stuff like this? These were the most spectacular things that anyone had ever seen, including themselves. Absolutely astonished. But you think they were astonished by what they saw. They weren't nearly astonished as to what came next. Because here's what came next. After the twelve tagged along with him and they watched him do this, he said, okay boys, now it's your turn. I want you to go out. The stuff you've been watching me to do, I want you to go out and do that too. Here's what Luke 9 says. 
He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority. Power is dunamis, dynamite. Gave them dunamis and exousia. Power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Can you see the looks on their faces though when Jesus said, guys, this is your assignment for the next few days. Two by two, I want you to head out there. I want you to cast out evil spirits and heal people anytime you find them. That's what I want you to do. They, but they set out. They did it. And to their astonishment, they discovered that exactly what Jesus had said happened. That in the power of Christ, they were healing people. In the power of Christ, they were setting people free from demonic activity. In the power of Christ, the, the breaking in of the kingdom of God was occurring right in their midst. And they were astounded. But you might say, well, that's fine for them. But that was the 12 apostles. They were the special ones. They were the inner circle, right? The ones who had the kind of the special mojo from Jesus. But that doesn't really account, account for the rest of us. No? Do you remember the 72? Luke talks about another circle of disciples. He calls them the 72. They weren't on the inner circle. You didn't get the 50-point bullseye, but they were in the next one down. They got 10 points at least. They're pretty close to Jesus. And we read in the chapter, right after he sends out the 12, Jesus sends out the next circle of disciples out and to do the very same thing. When they return, this is what we read. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you what? Authority. Exousia. Say it in Greek. Exousia. You are Greek scholars now. Act like it. To tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Imagine how astonished the 72 were to discover that Jesus had endowed them with the power to battle the devil. After all, they weren't the inner circle of Jesus, but apparently, because they were his followers, because they were his disciples, they too possessed all that was necessary to act in his exousia and in his dunamis, in his authority and his power. Still you might retort, but Pastor Mark, they were still with Jesus. That was something special. That was something unique. And by the way, you would join other churches other denominations who believe that that was all limited to that handful of people that were around Jesus. They were the only ones who really had that kind of mojo going. Well then, I, uh, I, I think this is where we're going to come to the uh, you've got to be kidding me part of the sermon. Because the Bible teaches that the exousia of Jesus, the spiritual authority that he gave to his inner circle of twelve, And the exousia of Jesus, the spiritual authority that he conferred upon the 72, it is the same authority that he has granted to you. Did you know that? As Christians, as spirit-filled followers of Jesus, we have a spiritual authority that most Christians don't even know they possess and a power that most Christians neglect. And if you doubt it, I take you to Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what Paul writes to the people of Ephesus. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and, listen to this, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want to remind you when Paul was writing, he was not writing to the 12. He was not writing to the 72. 
He was writing to plain old ordinary believers in Ephesus who had never even seen Jesus Christ face to face. And yet he makes this astounding claim that these ordinary believers are, quote, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Do you know what this language is? This is the language of enthronement. To be seated with is to talk about royalty. And so we come, we come to discover that, that those of us who have been saved by Jesus, those who are indwelt by His Holy Spirit, not only have we been adopted into God's family, it turns out we have been invited into the throne room of Jesus. And not just to bow before Him, but to sit next to Him. We are enthroned with Christ in authority next to Him. This is astounding stuff. I don't think most Christians even realize this. When we... We become Christians. He grants to us the same authority that he granted to the 12. The same authority that he granted to the 72, which he repeated again in his great commission in Matthew 28. All authority, exousia, has been granted unto me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. In other words, Jesus said, boys, I just want to be clear on this. I am the guy. All authority... Over everything is mine. It is mine to retain. It is mine to confer. Here's the deal. I confer my authority on you. Now go get them. If you learn nothing today, I want you to let this astonishing reality sink in. That you have been granted the authority of Jesus Christ. And this means that when we encounter the devil in all of his nasty little machinations, whether it's just vexations of some sort or whether it's outright spiritual warfare with demonic activity, however we find him, we do not have to just humble ourselves in kind of a meek submission. We have the authority of Jesus Christ to fight back. Or as I said last week, to talk back, which is one of the ways we fight. We're going to cover more of this in the coming three weeks of actually how we carry out some of this warfare. But I thought it might be well for us to just take a look at how Jesus did it. We're not going to do too badly. We're not going to go too far astray if we model our ministries, our lives after the Lord Jesus. And so this morning, I want to take a, a closer look at how Jesus did these, uh, these exorcisms, these deliverance ministries, and see what we can learn from them, okay? So here we go. Here are the six things that I have looked at as I've studied all of these passages this week. Number one, and this is the most important one, Jesus functioned under the anointing and direction of the Holy Spirit. He functioned under the anointing and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the very first battle that Jesus had with the enemy? Where did it occur? Yes, in his temptation in the wilderness, remember? And what happened just before Jesus went into the wilderness for that temptation? His baptism, right? And what happened in the baptism? The Holy Spirit came down upon him and filled him and blessed him. It came down like a bodily form of a dove. Now, Jesus had lived for 30 years. I don't know what kind of encounter spiritually he had had before that time, but it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came upon him in fullness in that moment of baptism that we see that he goes out and ready to take the devil on. In fact, we are told that the, devil, the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness to face the temptation of the enemy. We need to pay attention to that. We need to, we should never attempt spiritual intervention without first inviting the Holy Spirit to fill us over to overflowing. 
And, and some, some traditions believe that you're filled with the Holy Spirit only once. Others that you've got to have a second baptism. You know what I believe? You've got to have a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. In his writings, Paul says, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why would we want to stop at one? Why would we want to be stop at two? We need more Presbyterians who say, every day, Holy Spirit, fill me up to overflowing so that I can do only what you're calling me to do. So the first thing Jesus did is he, he made sure that he was functioning under the direction and under the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Here's the second thing we learned from Jesus. He spoke out loud to the evil spirits. Every time he cast out an evil spirit, he would speak out loud to it. I will ask you why. Because they couldn't read his mind. They were not omniscient. Psalm 139 tells us that before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together, all together. God knows what we're going to pray even before we pray it. That's why we can pray silently because the Lord knows our thoughts. He knows our minds. He knows our intentions. But the devil doesn't. That's why we've got to speak out loud to him. It was the way that Jesus made sure that the devil and his angels knew what he wanted him to do because he spoke out loud. You've got to speak out loud. Here's the third thing that Jesus does. With the exception of legion, he never converses with evil spirits. He never carries carries a conversation on with evil spirits. As a matter of fact, almost every time the evil spirits try to talk, they try to offer some fawning flattery, and they say, oh, the Son of God, blah, 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 blah. What does Jesus say? Shut up! I don't want to hear your wicked, foul testimony to who I am. I don't want to hear a word from you. Jesus didn't engage in a long conversation of any sort except in this instance with Legion. And I think it might have had to do with the remarkable uh, multiplicity of demons that were occupying this guy. Fourthly, Jesus never touches a demon-possessed person. I find that interesting because often Jesus touched those whom he healed. In fact, Part of his healing, I think, was the touch. Can you imagine being a leper who hasn't felt a human touch in years and years, feeling the touch of the master who restores you? That was one of the ways he restored people. But when it came to the demonic, and I think it's probably, again, a spiritual issue, he did not want to touch anyone who who was possessed by an evil spirit. He never touched them. Fifthly, his rebukes were always short. I think we think we've got to come up with fancy prayers, long-winded incantations, something in Latin perhaps, and we've got to repeat it over and over again and make sure that we get it right. And if we don't get it in the right order, with the right words, with the right binding, and the right blah, 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 then, that, then we're not going to get it done. And Jesus, it doesn't, he doesn't say the same thing every time, and it's always pithy, always short. It's simple. He says things like, be silent and come out of him. Or, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. That's all. And finally, Jesus taught us that after you command the enemy to leave, you always pray that the Holy Spirit will come and fill the empty places. He said that sometimes when you cast out evil spirits, if you don't do that, then they're going to come back with seven of their nasty little buddies and fill the space that you emptied. So every time you cast something out, you pray, Holy Spirit, will you fill up all the empty places that are left behind? As you become more and more confident in your own spiritual authority, as you dare to wade into these kinds of things, these would be things worth reminding us ourselves of, reflecting on this. Again, we're going to talk about more detail of this in the coming weeks, but I think it's time to move past theory and talk about some real-life stuff. 
uh, it shouldn't be any surprise that this great sweetheart congregation, people are taking this seriously and are beginning to put into practice some of the things that we are talking about. And I heard from a, a, a friend this week that they sought to do exactly that. He and his wife adopted a young man from another land and an area that is rife with a lot of demonic activity, a lot of spirit activity. And uh, they, they adopted him, they love him, but they've noticed that he's almost two different persons. At one time he's sweet and he's compliant and he's wonderful to be with. But on, the, on a turn of a dime, he can suddenly have a violent change in his temperament and, and become mean and deceitful. This family was involved in our, in our upwards basketball ministry. And on the last night when the celebration occurred and Pastor Ellis preached, uh, the boy was touched by what he heard. And on the way home, he said to his dad, Dad, I don't want to lie anymore. And, and I, I pick it up now with a letter that, that uh, he sent to me about what happened next. On March 8th, our son came home from school. He'd gotten into trouble again and was trying to lie his way out of it. Typical nine-year-old behavior, you might think. However, when we were talking to him, we noticed that he began to look at us strangely. His eyes twitched, and they looked different, empty. His expression, his whole countenance changed. And we'd seen this once or twice in the past. It could last for hours. We decided to end the conversation and left his room. About ten seconds later, I felt a Holy Spirit nudge to pray for him. I went back into his room, and I said, I'm going to pray for you. And I placed my hand on his chest And I spoke these words, in the name of Jesus, I claim victory over the enemy and command the enemy to leave you immediately. I then prayed for the Holy Spirit to fill him up. Within a couple of minutes, his normal countenance returned, and he's been great since then. Now you may dismiss this, you may say, ah, it's just happenstance, superstition, I've said all along that not everything we encounter is demonic in nature. I don't want us to be looking for a demon in every doorknob and a a devil behind every bush. But the fact is that the Western church has become intellectually arrogant to the point that we no longer take seriously the spiritual forces that Jesus took very seriously. And the astounding thing that we need to realize today is that if we are in Christ, we have been granted authority, his authority over these same forces. The Apostle Paul summed it up in a, in a kind of a pithy statement in Romans 16, the last chapter. He, he says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Did you catch that? The prediction of the Messiah was that he would crush the serpent under his heel. But now Paul says, now the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What would it mean to your marriage, to your family, to your household, to your job, to your school, if you began to walk in the authority that Jesus has conferred upon you? Jesus, thank you for your victory over the enemy. And forgive us for taking it for granted, for becoming dulled to it all. It is an astounding thing that you have done And even more standing that you would say, now, I want you to join me next to me on my throne. I want you to join me in spiritual authority over these things for you share in my power. 
God, I pray that more people would take you seriously and that that power, that authority would be released through our words, released in our witness, released in our life, that marriages might be restored, families might be saved, relationships might be restored, that that your witness might go forth in great power. We ask that in the matchless name of Jesus.